0: before we get started i want to tell you something exciting first time long time has a patreon page patreon is a platform where you can make a small recurring monthly donation to keep first time long time up and running we are entirely independent in fact we is me and though first time long time isn't super expensive to make it definitely costs some money and it all comes out of my pocket so please consider going over to patreon.com slash and chip in a little bit goes a long way and to those of you that have already given thanks so much now let's start the show A few months ago, I met a guy named Russ, who told me an incredible story. Back in the 60s, when he started following English soccer from the States, there was no way to watch his favorite team. So Russ came up with a clever
1: solution. I had a friend living in Islington. And every Monday, he'd send me the Sunday Times by mail. Eight days later, this brown package would arrive at my door in Boston. And, and you wouldn't know the result beforehand? No. There was nothing. I mean, there was no way of hearing any soccer news at all at that time. So I would have this ritual. I'd go upstairs, and I'd crack a beer, and then I'd just open my package. Would you read the other news in the paper? Not at all. Just straight to the results. It's funny, right? I mean, my heart would be pounding. It was just an incredible thrill, you know? It was just numbers like 2 1, 3 0, tiny bits of info. Dave, Mackay scored, Greavesy, whatever. But it meant everything to me.
0: I'm curious, what did you do with them when you were done? I saved them. Really?
1: <laughs> Every single last one.
0: So we went to Russ's basement.
1: Everything around down here. can't find anything.
0: Uh, And there in his cramped basement, in a kind of box of ephemera that one collects in the suburbs, was a stack of old yellowed newspapers. His eyes lit up when he found them. He was proud of these. They meant something to him.
1: Yes. That's the double. Tottenham 2, Sheffield Wednesday 1. We won the Cup in the League.
0: What? What was it like for you to open one of these newspapers and, and, and see that? I mean,
2: were you, were, were you excited?
1: It was as good as it gets, you know? Uh, when we lose, it was, it was the worst, but when we won, it didn't matter when it happened. It was like the whole game was played in the moment I opened up that package with, with the newspaper.
0: Standing there in the basement, listening to Russ, it struck me that I was seeing a time machine. A peculiar kind of time machine, one that only worked once. A time machine that transported one man back in time by eight days to experience a thrill or agony that thousands of people had already felt and forgotten.
1: Yeah, it was also hard. I mean, if we won, I'd be thrilled, but like, who cared? Who was I going to tell? Oh man, my team won a week ago. It's like it happened, but also it didn't.
0: So this is First Time, Long Time, a podcast about the way sports can describe and form the world around us. I'm Aaron Wolf, And this episode is all about time travel and truth. But let's start with the easy part. Let's start with time and relativity. Here's my friend Jonah.
2: My friend Kareem and I are both gigantic Mets fans. This is the October of 2015. The Mets are in the playoffs, and we're playing against the Cubs. And Jake Arrieta, who was just unhittable all year, is pitching against us. And I'm going to to watch this game at Kareem's and we're both running a little bit late, so we know that it's going to be DVR'd.
0: Jonah gets on the subway about 10 minutes before the game starts. And when he gets off the train about a half hour into the game, he's got a text message waiting for him from his friend Zach, a Cubs fan.
2: And the text message says, For your birthday, I'm going to give you four runs against Arietta." So this
0: is a joke. Obviously, Zach doesn't have control over whether the Mets score four runs against Jake Arietta who, by the way, no one could score four runs off of that season. But Jonah has a problem. See, Jonah doesn't know when Zach sent that text. For example, if he sent it before the game started, then it's a harmless joke. Because it's your birthday, I'm going to predict this impossible thing. But... Maybe the text was sent after the game started. Maybe Zach didn't know that Jonah was watching on DVR and accidentally revealed something about Jonah's future.
2: And we're we're sitting down to watch the game, and I don't say anything to Kareem because I don't want to ruin it for him if in case it was actually ruined for me.
0: Jonah and Kareem start watching the game about a half hour after the rest of the world. And in the bottom of the first inning, the Mets score three runs.
3: There goes Granderson. Fly ball, center field. Pretty well
4: hit. Fowler goes back. He won't get there.
5: Randerson will score easily. Wright standing in second with an RBI double.
2: And now I'm like, oh, wait, this is this text was real. And I'm watching this thing unfold in the past, in my present. But I have knowledge from the future.
0: Jonah was standing with a foot in three different time zones. The minute he pressed play on the DVR, Jonah's present was 30 minutes behind the rest of the world. The rest of the world was living in Jonah's future, and because he knew this piece of information, the game he was watching was now in the past. Or at least he thinks all that might be true. He still isn't sure. Yeah, I mean, there's some, there's like this nervousness of the time traveler thing. Like, <laughs> yes. it's really I, weird. Right. It's like, it's re- I, I didn't
2: want to disrupt the space-time continuum for anybody.
0: <laughs> right, but you also like, don't yeah. know
2: where you are in the space-time. It's, just, I it's wonderful. Where, exactly. I didn't know where I was in time. I didn't know if I was in, like, Eastern Standard Time present or Game Time present. Right. Or neither. On the ground, in
0: the but then, in the bottom of the third inning, the Mets score a fourth run. It's an unbelievable achievement, but Jonah doesn't feel happy. He feels a sort of weird disappointment at having had this moment ruined for him. When I first got my first DVR, you hated it. I would watch games that were recorded.
2: I was so so against it. Why? I mean, part of it probably had to do with how excited you were about it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But I think also, there was something about the sanctity of the moment, and we were, we were outside of it. We would be watching a game, and everybody else would be watching it at another time. So I was not in the community.
0: So this is interesting to me. When we watch sports at home on our couch or listen on the radio, we're not part of the community. We're separated by space, but also by time. And look, I'm not just talking about DVRing a game or waiting eight days for the newspapers to arrive. There are time shifts we can't control. The time it takes a signal to reach the satellite and then beam back to Earth. The time it takes your cable box to decode the zeros and ones into an image. There's even the 10 second delay in case a ball player shouts a dirty word on mic. Back in the early days of HD and SD transmissions, the HD feed took longer to get to the screen. I remember that during the 2006 World Cup, I could hear a goal from across the street before it happened on my screen. Just turning on the game is accepting that you're not part of the community, of the moment. And yet we're able to let all that go. As long as we don't know what happens, we're able to project ourselves back in time, to build an illusion that we're watching along with all our fellow fans. And Zach had ruined that illusion for Jonah. Or had he?
2: So the next day I asked Zach... And he was like, he said, no, I texted you that before the game started. I can't believe it actually happened. So I'm sitting there watching a game that already started, but not fully there because I think maybe I'm in the future and watching it in the past, (laughs) but I wasn't at all. I was actually just watching it in the present (laughs) because I didn't have any knowledge, but the thing that I thought maybe would happen actually did.
0: According to the theory of relativity, time dilation is a difference in the elapsed time measured by two observers, either due to a velocity difference relative to each other or by being differently situated relative to a gravitational field. Or in the case of Jonah, by a text message.
2: One more thing about your DVR. Do you remember that we missed New Year's because of that stupid thing one year? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. We were DBRing something, and we were talking about it, and I said, like, you're going to mess up New Year's, and everyone was like, no, 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 we'll be fine. And then we forgot to catch it back up because someone rewinded something, and we missed New Year's.
0: Well, we didn't miss it. We just celebrated it, like, five minutes too late because we were untethered from time. It's kind of beautiful. ¶¶ This is part of the essential nature of sports that I love so much. Just like we had accidentally created our own time zone that New Year's, or how Jonah had become completely and utterly unsure of where he was in time because of that text from Zach. But sports does this even on a normal day. Baseball games on the East Coast start at 7.05 p.m., and then they keep going until both teams have gotten out 27 times, no matter how long it takes. Even rigidly timed games quickly swap our temporal plane for something else. For example, a basketball game is made up of four 12-minute periods. But the minute the clock starts, we shift from thinking of time in the same way. We concentrate on seconds, even milliseconds of action, in ways we would never do in normal life. And because the clock starts and stops so often, by the time the game is over, there's no way of knowing how much world time has actually elapsed. Think about it. We've all been in that situation where the last 12 seconds of a football game takes four minutes. When we watch sports, we become decoupled from time as we experience it in normal life. We adopt this second type of sequential time, one that's no longer governed by the second hand on our wall, but by the ebbs and flows of the game we're watching. And in this very simple way, all sports are like time machines. But there's another way as well. And to find it, I came here, Lowell, Massachusetts, to La Park, Home of the minor league baseball team, the Lowell Spinners.
6: Grab your
0: $2. <laughs> the Lasher Park is kind of amazing. It's this old-fashioned stadium that sits right on the bend of the Merrimack River. There's billboards advertising local companies and brands that I've never even heard of. And over the short first base stands, you can see these old smokestacks from what was once factories.
3: Well, Lowell is a mill town, a text- textile town. So the spinning of the yarn. That's where that uh, that came from.
0: For the past six years, John Leahy has been the radio voice of the Lowell Spinners.
3: Well, this is my sixth year with the Spinners. Uh, I've been broadcasting professional baseball since 2005.
0: It's about two hours before game time. Vendors are trickling in. Young men and women starting their first summer jobs. A few players from the visiting team gather in left field. They're stretching, I guess, or maybe just chatting about the bus ride. And near the pitcher's mound, a groundskeeper setting up the balls for batting practice stops and he sort of lazily pretends to hit a home run over the center field fence. He watches it land, and then he goes back to work. The whole thing feels like a throwback to a different time, a time in which this is what baseball was, what America was. It feels like a time machine, but not the time machine I'm looking for. I'm here for something else. I actually, I have um, a recording that I would love to play for you. Yeah, sure. Uh,
6: Let me just cue it up. So...
7: At Yankee Stadium
6: in New York, it's the seventh and
7: deciding game of the World Series. And Wade Hoyt is on the mound now, working the warm-up trusses down to Hank Severide. This is
0: Game 7 of the 1926 World Series between the St. Louis Cardinals and the New York Yankees. The voice you're hearing is Don Wells from the Liberty Broadcast System. I've come here to play this recording for John Leahy.
7: the sign now as it dips into the full is the pitch down outside for a ball. It's 1-0 and the game is underway. Oh, leading off of the St. Louis Cardinals. No score. The ball game having just begun. This is the top half of the welcome frame. Southworth, there in the on-deck circle. And Roger Tornsby is in the hole.
0: As I sit there in the broadcast booth of the Lasher Park, John Leahy's face is blank. He's listening carefully to the pattern, the way the crowd ebbs and flows, listening to the machine gun words fired over an ancient AM signal over 90 years ago, when a man just like John sat in a booth just like the one we're in now and turned the pictures he saw in front of him into words so that people like you and I could see what he saw.
7: With nobody on still working with the full lineup pitched down right through there for strike one call. Fastball, I'm here
0: in South the Lasher Bay, Park because what this man is doing, what John one Leahy one does one every single game of the, the season, never ceases to amaze and me.
7: Watching now the
0: history of radio, from Buck Rogers in the 25th century to this American life, is filled with men and women who have spent countless hours trying to figure out how best to put pictures in the mind of the listener.
7: But with baseball
0: on the radio, more so than in any other sport, it happens effortlessly. We can picture it. We can see it. Because we have seen it many, many times.
7: And it's a fly ball lifted out into left field. Bob Muzel is drifting back now. He's camped under it, waiting, and he has it for the out. So Billy Southworth is flat out to Bob Muzel
3: in left field.
0: And so, images become words. Words become sound waves. Sound waves become vibrations. Triggering memories. Triggering images. Triggering this magical moment when our reality ceases to exist, except for in the sound of the broadcast.
4: I got interested in baseball very quickly because we were in a cardinal territory, although they didn't have any local affiliates, you had to search the dial for a single station and hopefully uh, there weren't too many clouds up above and you wouldn't have too much static.
0: This is John Miley.
4: There were days when, uh, when my mother would come in and watch me listening to a ball game on the floor with my ear up against the radio trying to determine what was happening in the game. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm listening to the ballgame.
0: John Miley is one of the largest collections of recorded sports broadcasts in the world. I got the recording of the 1926 World Series from his website a few months ago. And if there's anyone who knows about that magical moment when a radio broadcast sweeps you away, it's John.
4: I started saving audio in 19... 19- Forty-seven, I believe, something like that. I wish I had done it before, but I got a wire recorder in 1947 and started saving uh, radio calls of all sports.
0: Soon he built a network of people to help him collect the radio broadcasts of sporting events from all around the world. You have one game to listen to. Uh, The last game that you could possibly listen to, which game would you choose?
4: Maybe game... Of the 1942 World Series, since I'm such a Cardinal fan.
7: Beasley rocks in the box. Here's his pitch. Right through there for a call strike, fastball, and high.
4: I can name you the starting lineup of the Cardinals. It was Walker Cooper and Morton Cooper, uh, pitcher and catcher, brothers. Jimmy Brown, second. Marty Marion, short. Uh, Whitey Korowski was third.
0: John Miley is an old man. He often loses his train of thought or forgets a word, except when he's talking about these recordings.
4: My family calls me Mr. Nostalgia, and, and a lot of people say, oh, I don't worry about the past. The past is the past. I said, listen, I, I pay attention to today. I'm working hard to do what I need to do today. I'm planning for the future. I plan as well as anybody else for the future. But you're not here today without your past. That's how much the, the past means to me, period.
0: And these tapes serve as almost like a time machine to the past. They'll take you right back to that moment. Absolutely. Throughout our conversation, John kept coming back with stories about how people were touched by hearing recordings from their pasts. A woman hearing her grandfather's World Series Home Run, an aging broadcaster taken back to a forgotten moment from his past. Each little recording is a portal to another place. I wrote a film about this idea. It's called Record Play. And in the film, a cassette and a Walkman becomes a time machine that takes a husband back to the moment of his wife's death. The twist is that he can only stay there for the length of the recording. The minute the tape stops, he's spit back out into his living room, right where he started. This is another recording that John Miley loves. It's a college game played between UC Berkeley and Stanford University. And if you were to take this recording and put it in the magical Walkman of my film, you'd find yourself in 1982. And if instead of walking into Memorial Stadium, you turned around and headed away from the crowds, away from the big game, across the campus of UC Berkeley, you'd find yourself in downtown Berkeley. And in 1982, you'd have your pick of bookstores to walk into, where you'd find a new book by a first-time novelist named W.P. Kinsella. It's a book about a different kind of time machine, One made in a cornfield in Iowa, where a guy named Ray decides to plow his crops into a baseball diamond, gripped by those famous words, If you build it, he will come. The book was called Shoeless Joe, and it'd be turned into one of the most well-known baseball movies of all time, Field of Dreams. In the movie, Kevin Costner builds a baseball diamond, and the ghosts of baseball's past emerge from the rows of corn to play the game that they loved as though baseball was this mystical portal to another dimension.
1: Is this heaven? It's
0: world. And it's totally corny. But I think he's kind of right. Baseball on the radio was a mystical portal to another dimension. And I have proof. When we come back, Guess what? First Time Long Time has a sponsor. We're sponsored by Payfully. Renting your home or spare room can be a great way to earn some extra money. Everyone knows that. But if you've ever done it, you know that it can take months to actually get paid. And that's where Payfully comes in. Payfully is a safe and secure way to get paid for your upcoming reservations within 24 hours of them being booked. Payfully will deposit directly into your bank account with funds usually available the same day. And they work with all the major platforms Airbnb, VRBO, HomeAway, and others as well. You can visit payfullynow.com for $20 off your first request with offer code LONGTIME. That's payfullynow.com, offer code LONGTIME. Back to the show.
7: Babe Ruth on his first now. Pete Alexander taking his time. Old Pete, who already has won two World Series games, won't get credit for this one in the record. We're
0: back in Lowell now, listening to the 1926 World Series. There are two outs in the bottom of the ninth inning. Babe Ruth is on first. Here's Lindsay Nelson giving us the play-by-play.
7: pitch. It is outside, and Ruth is going The throw. It's going through now to second base. Ruth is sliding in and the car to at second base, and he's out of there.
0: This is a famous final moment in the ball game, With two outs and down by one run, Babe Ruth, a huge, slow slugger, takes off to try to steal second base, and he's out by a mile. Just like that, the World Series is over. St. Louis wins it in New York City. Ruth
7: goes out stealing to end the game, to end the World Series. And the St. Louis Cardinals are champions of the world. Just
0: listen to Lindsay Nelson describe this strange moment. Can you see it? And now
7: the fans are pouring out of the stands,
2: onto the field.
0: Listen to the crowd murmur. Can you picture the dejected Yankees fans heading towards the exits? Can you see Lindsay sitting back in his chair, ready to sign off for the afternoon? Ready to go home to his wife and kids to tell them about having seen a slice of baseball history? Is there a part of you pulled through the headphones into that moment? into the stadium as the Yankees pack up and go home.
7: So now, speaking for Don Wells and for Craig Littes, this is Lindsay Nelson bidding you all a very pleasant good afternoon.
0: Well, here's the thing. Lindsay Nelson was seven years old when Babe Ruth was caught stealing. That recording, that time machine, was made in the 1950s by Don Wells and Lindsay Nelson in the studios of Liberty Broadcasting System in Dallas, Texas, 25 years after the game had been played.
7: Now, news
4: Gordon McClendon owned a company called Liberty Radio Network. They were based in Dallas, and, uh, and they were allowed by Major League Baseball to, in the evening to do a game that had been played that, that afternoon. So they would find out what happened in the game, pitch by pitch, and then that night the announcers would get on the air and do the ball game. If there didn't happen to be a ball game on a certain day, they would go back and recreate a game from the past. Like the 1926 World Series Game 7, which was a very famous game.
0: Everything you just heard of the 1926 World Series was fake. It was a recreation made in a studio to fill a few hours of airtime. But did you catch that other thing?
4: They were allowed by Major League Baseball to, in the evening, to do a game that had been played that, that afternoon.
0: Two guys alone in a studio in Dallas were essentially Jonah's DVR. Picture this. It's 1953. You've just eaten dinner. The kids are upstairs getting ready for bed. It's 6.58 p.m. You sit down in your brown leather chair, turn on your RCA radio, set the dial to AM 850, and then close your eyes. You've waited all day for this. The Dodgers play the Yankees at Ebbets Field this afternoon while you were at work. And you've studiously avoided the radio. You kept your eyes down on the streetcar so that you wouldn't see the evening edition with the scores. You haven't talked to a soul. And so, as the tubes warm up, you are transported to a moment six hours earlier.
7: McDougald, one of the few players in the series who bats from a wide-open stance. In fact, his stance is the widest of all. He awaits the pitch. Here it comes. He swings, and there's a foul off to the right and back. It was out of play, and the count is one and two.
0: In that moment, you are existing just as Jonah existed, untethered from time. The game plays out as though the past was the present, just as it does when you press play on the DVR two hours after the game has started. Except, of course, that the person painting the pictures in your head is making it all up. The game you're listening to is an invention. It's one man converting a few notes, some pieces of data, and a couple of rudimentary sound effects into epic theater just for you.
7: He went after that overhand fastball, and he didn't get around in time.
0: And it's one thing to listen to a game that you know is a recreation. What you're listening to right now is a recreation of the 1953 World Series. It's fake. But imagine you didn't know it was fake. Imagine you were listening to it in real time, lying on the brown carpet of your grandparents' living room, feet in the air, ears pressed to the speaker, listening to the sounds of the game, pulled into a ballpark that only exists in the broadcaster's imagination. Do you think you'd know the difference? Do you think you'd care? What if I told you that exact scenario happened over and over again for years?
4: Back in the 1940s, most of the teams didn't have enough money, I guess, to send their announcers on the road. So when their team went on the road, they would get it ticker-taped into the studio And the announcers would uh, recreate the game, and uh, and sometimes those games were just as exciting as if they were at the stadium.
2: Literally
0: half the games that most people listened to in the 1940s were being recreated in a studio hundreds of miles away from where the game was being played. Here's how it worked Western Union would have someone at the ballpark watching the game. They'd send out information over teletype to whoever could get their hands on it. Pitched, ball, strike, hit, run, scored, it's the minimum information. And from that tiny bit of data, the broadcasters would fill in the blanks, inventing pitches, hits, inventing entire games.
3: We were within a half a pitch of right up with the live ball game all the time. Sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's President Ronald Reagan being interviewed in 1984 by Jim Zabel of WHO Radio in Iowa, where Ronald Reagan recreated Chicago Cubs games for years here he is talking about his relationship with the guy on the ticker tape.
3: He had to abbreviate things down, like in would come the paper and it would say out 4-3. Mm-hmm. Well, that meant out from second base to first base, that meant it had to be a grounder, so you'd take it and you'd say and Dean comes out of the windup and here comes the pitch and it's a hard hit ground ball down towards second base, so-and-so going over after the ball picks it up, hoops it over to first, just in time for the out By this time, you're waiting for the next one. Mm -hmm. Or he would send you S1C, Mm -hmm. and that meant strike one call. So you'd say, he's got the sign, comes out of the windup, here's the pitch, and it's a call strike. Breaking over the outside corner, just above the (laughs) knees.
0: Do you get it? Three letters become an entire scene. S1C, strike one called, could be a curveball on the outside corner, but it could also mean a fastball inside or a changeup that froze the batter. That ground out from second base to first could have been a rocket that the second baseman had to dive to the left, scramble up to his knees, and fire over to first. Or it could have been the laziest, slowest ball that the second baseman fielded and tossed underhand to first base. It was either drama or total boredom. It was entirely up to the imagination and improvisation of the broadcaster. And that extended to every aspect of the game, even the technical difficulties.
3: It was the ninth inning, the Cards and the Cubs tied up zero, zero. Here comes the slip of paper and it said the wires have gone dead. So I had Jurgis foul one, and then I had him foul another, and then I had him foul one that missed a home run by a foot, then I described two kids down back at third base were <laughs> in a fight over the ball that had gone into the stands back. And pretty soon, Curly started typing, and in came the slip, and then I started giggling. <laughs> I had trouble getting it out, because the slip said Jurgis popped out on the first ball pitch. <laughs> <laughs> That's good.
0: It's amazing to think you could be listening to a game, picturing this epic battle between a pitcher and a batter, fouling off ball after ball after ball, and it was all a lie. And yet, I'm sure it was beyond exciting to the listener. And I
1: love that. I
0: love that so much that I made one of these time machines myself. That first thing that you heard in this episode, the conversation with Russ?
1: I mean, if we won, I'd be thrilled, but, like, who cared?
0: That's not Russ. That's my friend Jacob.
1: It's like it happened, but also, it didn't.
0: I met Russ at a bar in Boston, and he told me that story, but then he disappeared. No emails, no phone calls, nothing. And at first I thought, well, I guess I'll never be able to tell that story. And then I thought, or I could recreate it. And look, obviously there are serious implications when it comes to real journalism and the news and all of that. But that's not why we watch sport. We watch sport to escape to be lifted into a reality more real, more vital, than the one all around us. A reality in which we can live and die by a single person's ability to kick or throw a rock. It's ridiculous. But it matters precisely because it doesn't matter. Because whether it's a recreation, or it's time shifted by a few hours or days, or even if it never happened, it still does the job. It gives you a moment of thrill, of transcendence. And that's why I went to La Lasher Park in Lowell, Massachusetts. That's why I wanted to meet John Leahy. The folks that made the recreations in the 1940s, they're all long gone. But if anyone could shine some light on how it all worked, how it might have felt in the booth, I thought it would be a broadcaster and a small market throwback of a baseball team. But it turned out John Leahy gave me something much better than an explanation. He gave me a link to the past. I'd love to get your perspective on, like... I what these guys are doing, it sounds to my ears, as a layman, it sounds to me like indistinguishable from from a live
3: broadcast. Well, I'm familiar with that process because there's a guy, a good friend of mine who works in the Midwest League, Jesse Goldberg Strassler. He does one game recreation per year. Get out of here, today, still. Yeah, still today, it's one of his passions. What's his name? Jesse Goldberg Strassler. He works for the Lansing Lugnuts in the Midwest League.
6: My name is Jesse Goldberg Strassler. I'm very proudly hyphenated. I was born in Washington, D.C., and I grew up in Maryland. The local minor league baseball team was the Double A Bowie Bay Sox. And so my father had the great idea, why not contact their broadcaster and say, hey, do you mind if I record a broadcast? And he said, yes, we purchased a mini cassette recorder. And I sat down in this booth to broadcast my first game into my mini cassette recorder. And as I recall, the very first batter hit a home run. And I was so taken aback, I had no idea what to say, I was at a loss for words, and I was caught in between words, and I stopped the tape, and I pressed rewind, and I re-recorded my home run call as if he had just hit it. You
0: did a recreation the very first time you sat down to do it.
6: (laughs) I had no idea how hard broadcasting was, but from that initial time, I suddenly started listening to games differently. Jesse goes to Ithaca College to pursue a
0: career in sports broadcasting. He broadcasts hockey and women's lacrosse and volleyball. But when he graduates, he finds it much harder than he thought to break into the business.
6: My very first position out of college, I was doing audio description of musical theater. I was describing Jesus Christ Superstar like baseball play-by-play. Wow! So let's say someone wanted to go to see Jesus Christ Superstar and they're visually impaired. They would pick up their headset as they walked in and I would be broadcasting to them. Now, I would not step on anybody's lines. I would not step on any lyrics, but if someone new entered, I'd quickly say a woman enters from the left clad in a blue dress, and then I'd get out of the way. And it was just play by play right there to help you understand and see what is the scene right now. What does everything look like? Well, I have chills. I have chills hearing this. First of all, I had
0: no idea it was something that happened. But second of all, what an incredible
6: way to learn how to translate visuals into language. I learned a very important lesson from that, because I described, as someone entered, I said, a gorgeous woman enters from the right. And afterward, one of the listeners said to me, I really appreciated your audio description, but... Gorgeous is in the eye of the beholder. You might think she's gorgeous. Just describe her to me and let me decide whether she's gorgeous. Don't make that opinion for me.
0: The next summer, Jesse gets his first job in baseball, working for the Brockton Rocks, an independent team playing in Brockton, Massachusetts. This was not the glamorous life that Jesse had hoped for. It's hard to get people to come watch
6: independent league baseball. So the team found little gimmicks to get fans in the seats. Jim Lucas was looking for a way that we could capture the attention of the Boston media, assigned Matt Miola and myself to do a game recreation. Jesse and his partner Matt took turns texting each other about
0: what was happening during the game while the other filled in the blanks with canned crowd sounds and halting commentary. It was cute and strange, but it was ultimately just a gimmick. Then, in 2008, Jesse got a job as the voice of the Windy City Thunderbolts, playing in the Independent Frontier League out of Crestwood, Illinois. He was broadcasting the games over a streaming internet radio station. And one night while he was preparing the broadcast.
6: A huge Chicago-area thunderstorm blew through at Standard Bank Stadium, knocked out all internet in the press box. However, the stadium front office still had its internet. And I grabbed too many bats, and I grabbed a ball and a glove. Uh, I was working with a number two broadcaster named Nick Kovach, and he messaged me the first three innings. I switched. I messaged him the middle three. He messaged me the last three. And blindly, we called the first no-hitter in Windy City Thunderbolts history.
1: That one just missed, down and away.
6: And I decided every year thereafter in August to honor Harold Arlen's very first broadcast on KDKA, I would do a game recreation night. And so I've done it annually since then.
8: 1-1 on its way, swung on, belted back up the middle, that hit off second base and that squirts into center field.
6: I sit outside my broadcast booth in the open press box area. And I use two Thomas, broken bats. Back in and I hit them Lugans together outfield. at different points along the bats, depending upon how loud the krauk, uh, how big the bass hit, or is it a foul, or is it a broken bat? Swings, lines it, left field, own you in, makes the catch, and the side's retired. Meanwhile, Lugans I have crowd down sound down in the once. background that I've recorded from the previous day. And then behind me, I can put in the organ music if... I want to to liven things up. I have various measures of applause, leading all the way up to thunderous applause if there's a home run that's hit. He swings. It's a fly ball to left field, carrying. onus at the wall. It's gone. Three run homer. J. B. Woodman. Lansing leads six to five. Let's say, for example, that it's a big strikeout. I'm talking all the while setting up this pitch. Runners at first, second, and third, they're surrounding him. The batter digs in. The pitcher looks in for the sign. Meanwhile, as I'm saying all of this, I grab the glove, put it on my left hand, grab the ball in my right hand. I'm tossing the ball up and down like I'm that pitcher. I get that right grip going for that ball. And then, as I call it, here comes the one-two. Slam the ball into the glove. Swung at and missed, struck him out. I take off the glove. I put the baseball down. I've got that crowd sound ready to roar and I can just bask it. And then I come back and I bring that volume back down. I'll go, stranded the bass is loaded, side retired, let's go to the bottom of the eighth, here's the score, and I send it right to break. (laughs) And then I collapse and take a deep breath.
0: So why do this? Why spend all this energy building a time machine that in this day and age we simply don't need anymore?
6: It's all tradition to me. I pay tribute to the broadcasters from back in the day, just the same way that I'm very much cognizant of my Jewish tradition. So I live in a household that's surrounded by all sorts of folklore from baseball and from different cultures. I'm a very big fan of generation to generation. It's how you live your life in increments. I live my life in increments of stories. What do you call a
0: time machine that takes you to a place that never really existed? You call it a story. But the troubling thing is, you could also call it a lie. In the storytelling world, there's a constant debate over what matters more, the truth or the facts. Does it really matter if there were three people in the car when you almost died? Or is it okay to say that there were only two? What about if you say you were alone? What if you leave out the detail altogether and just let the audience fill in the gaps? Does it matter if the strike was a fastball inside or a curveball in the dirt? if the ball was smoked to left field or lazily fell between the fielders. Somehow when it comes to baseball recreations, it feels like it doesn't matter. It feels like the story is more important than the facts. It feels like what Werner Herzog calls ecstatic truth.
1: Cinema Verité uh, believes and probably is confused about the distinction between fact and truth. It's uh, facts are something very superficial and and, and they uh, ultimately get accountant's truth so there's an accountant's truth and there's something much deeper and you will find that in great poetry when you listen or when you read a great poem it will occur to you very abruptly that there's a deep enormous truth in this poem
6: it's about me believing and me seeing it so when I'm describing it for you I'm believing that I'm seeing it right now has to be things that I believe happened. It has to be things that I can see that I can relate to you and place you right there. So is the game playing in your head? Yes, without a doubt. To Swing in a line drive, left field, hit bell. Orosco back to the wall. Jump somebody made the catch. Orozco leaping at the fence. Rob screams.
0: I believe Jesse, and I believe Herzog. I think they create poetry, and are open about its limitations. Jesse prefaces every single broadcast with a disclaimer. And you basically just heard Herzog do the same thing on a panel at the American Film Institute. But I also believe that there's a limitation to all of this. A way in which the time machine of stories, the ecstasy of truth, breaks down. It happens when we fall victim to hoaxes, documentaries that purport to be fact but are entirely fiction. But it also happens in a quieter and deeper way. And that's where I want to leave you, with one more story. One final time machine about a baseball recreator from Evansville, Indiana. A guy named Marv Bates, whose name came
8: up over and over again as one of the greatest recreators of all time. I haven't found a single person who has anything negative to say about Marv Bates. This is Joe Atkinson. I am a professor of communication at the University of Evansville uh, and a documentary filmmaker.
0: Joe made a film called From the Ashes that featured Marv Bates. In fact, it featured the only footage I could find anywhere of someone doing a recreation in the studio.
8: He would sit in a studio with all of these little tapes of, of sound effects. Here's a little he's bit of his film. Using his imagination to recreate the, he's calling the game as if he's there. And you know, when there's a hit, you know, he hit that block of wood and took! And he's creating the atmosphere of the game. So the sound effects.
3: He had natural sounds of everything you could think of. He had the train that would go past Bossy Field. Sound of the guy selling the hot dogs in the stands. And
7: I'm going to bring Bob Molinero to the plate. Bob Molinero.
8: The right field tonight. And you can just picture it as being, you know, him reading from the thing, the flurry of activities as he's grabbing one tape and putting it in, and then taking the next, the next one out and do to, to get all the right sound effects at all the right moments and all of that. Um, you know, it's like a master conductor uh, working his orchestra, and that and that was his orchestra was was creating this this game uh, out of thin air largely. When you hear people in Evansville talk about Marv Bates, there's a, a reverence. He was the voice of sports in their youth. I mean, it's just stunning how much this city and this town loved Marv Bates. For years,
0: Marv Bates recreated games from his studio instead of traveling with the team. But everything changes. In 1977, the University of Evansville men's basketball team went Division One for the first time. Now they were playing games all around the country. Marv Bates was the voice of all the sports in Evansville, including the men's basketball team.
8: And on December the 13th, they were getting on a plane to go play at Middle Tennessee State uh, in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And the plane was delayed because of bad weather.
0: It had been raining in Evansville and a layer of fog sat over the airport. This is audio from Joe's documentary. It's taken from inside the air traffic control tower, moments before the plane took off. That's one of the air traffic controllers. He's saying it crashed crashed, crashed. Everyone on board was killed.
8: 29 people, including all of the players, uh, the head coach, uh, several supporters, as well as Marv Bates, who was on the plane to go and broadcast the Aces game the next day. It's the cruelest sort of tragic irony a man who made his name by
0: recreating broadcasts of games he couldn't afford to attend, finally gets to the position to be flown around the country and ends up dying in a plane crash on his way to broadcast a game. This is a time machine for one person. I don't know who it was yelling, it crashed, it crashed, but that man, upon hearing those words, I'm sure remembers every single detail of that moment. Every feeling every tear shed by the people of Evansville. But for us, it is only to imagine. We can try to fill in the blanks. We can try to picture what it might have been, what it might have felt like. We can recreate the story in our minds from the tiniest of details. We can even believe that there's a part of us, there, feeling it, mourning with them. But it's not the same. This time machine is not for us. And so all we can do is listen, And think of Marv Bates and those 29 people. And hold a space in our hearts for those that do remember.
5: It's your used gray jacket from back when Velcro straps were invented It's your car that wouldn't start when you would first attempt it It's your long dark hair so thick and scented It's the same old movies that we always rented and watched on your V
0: So that's the show. First Time Long Time is written, produced, edited, and mixed by me. Thanks so much to John Leahy, the Lowell Spinners, the John Miley Collection, Jesse Goldberg Strassler, Jonah Canner, Joe Atkinson. Go check out his film From the Ashes. I'll include a link to the film's website in the show notes. And thanks to Jacob White for being the voice of Russ, who, by the way, if you're listening, Russ, I'd love to check out your collection of newspapers. The song you're hearing right now is Winter Cavities by David Heatley. You can check out his music and his art at davidheatley.com that
5: politician that we hated when he was erected. And
0: please go to my website, firsttimelongtime.am, for more information about everything you heard in the episode. And if you liked what you heard, please consider becoming a patron. Go over to patreon.com slash firsttimelongtime to help cover some of the small costs to make this podcast. And to those of you who have already donated, I cannot thank you enough. From the bottom of my heart, it means the world to me that you believe in this little thing. And finally, as a sign off, here's Jesse Goldberg Strassler one more time.
6: With great thanks to Aaron Wolf, I'm Jesse Goldberg Strassler. This is first time, long time. Here's wishing you well from Michigan State Capitol, and thanks for your company.
0: Thanks for listening.
5: It's your eyes hiding secretly behind your glasses It's that kiss goodbye when I was late for my classes It's how you ignored those kids when they tried to harass us It's the race to your car when we could see who was the fastest La la, la 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 La, la 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 Winter tends to leave cavities Winter